on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. First of all, warrior is a very, um, a thing to really ponder over in our time. Like, is that something uh, you you uh, want to embrace, that I want to embrace? And if I did uh, find a way to embrace uh, some of the deeper understandings of that, as I've come to understand, uh, am I really worthy of this, you know? And what does it ask of me? What does it mean to be a warrior of love, an interpreter and a carrier of the fate of love in this world in its many guises and forms? So that's that's the burden that was placed on me. Mm. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Gary Dillon, a mentor of many years and man I consider deeply grateful to know. I first met Gary in the Orphan Wisdom School and have discovered that Gary's rich and varied life has taken him through many pathways and modalities, including learning the traditional Hawaiian art of Lomi Lomi bodywork, transformational movement therapy, and the arts of sacred intimacy. In our conversation today, Gary shares how he was given the name Kekoa Anui, which means a warrior of aloha. We explore the tale of Eros and Psyche and the dynamic nature of divinity. And we speak of the role of memory and beauty as nourishment for the mythological world tree. Before we begin, I wish to let you know about the Mythic Masculine Network. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. If you wish to dive deeper into the themes and practices explored in this podcast, head over to themythicmasculine.com and click Network to claim your free trial. And now, enjoy my conversation with Gary Dillon. Welcome to the show, Gary Keikoa Dillon. Aloha, Ian. <laughs> Would you please begin by sharing a little bit about where we are in this moment? At this moment, we are in the studio, uh, the art studio that I was able to build with uh, my, Elfie, my wife's um, good graces, her mother's ben- uh, benefice. Uh, we're surrounded by artworks that I've been, uh, most of these that we have around us here are fairly recent, but there are in this room others that are, have been created in the past. And mm. this is a place of healing and a, and a, and a creative force in itself, this room. Mm. I always feel very humbled to be able to walk through its doors myself. Oh. And to and to know that we built this with our own hands mm. makes it always makes it special. Mm. Yeah. I'm grateful that 
we have the opportunity to record this interview here in this place of beauty. And I want to begin by sharing a little with the listener about how we met, or the first first time we met, which was through a teaching by a, a mutual teacher of ours, Stephen Jenkinson, a number of years ago. I believe it was back in 2012, I think, the summer of 2012. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> was, it was back there somewhere. Yeah. I've, I, it's been, I would think, 2015, really, but maybe it was before that. Yeah. I don't know. And since then, uh, you know, we've been in a number of different things. And one of the things I've been really grateful for is to see just how rich a experiential journey that you've had and the many ways in which that beauty has shown up. Uh, whether through painting, of which is, you know, as I'm looking at some of the pieces, it's quite achieved, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. through transformational movement, I understand, which is something we could touch on in a bit. And also through Lomi Lomi, which Lomi is a, Lomi. A, yeah, a form of, I mean, maybe a form of massage is the, is the most overall, over, what's the word? If I, if I may just uh, sure. help you out here. <laughs> Please. Uh, you you're you're right and you're my 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 most important teacher always forbid me to use the word massage mm. even it's nothing wrong with the word massage mind you or the practice but um she wanted to impress upon me and other students that we were involved in something that was uh, guided by more than the physical experience of massage, so we keep our focus on a much bigger ground. Mm-hmm. But mind you, this is not. Uh, 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 hopefully, that saying that isn't a way of over exalting mm. w- myself. You know, this is it, that was said as a way of humbling, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, of, of impressing the lesson, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you can say it, but I probably wouldn't say it <laughs> myself. I was fortunate enough to experience it on the table for the first time yesterday. That's right. And what's still with me is a feeling, uh, I mean, a combination of a kind of blessing and and a, a spiritual hollowing in, <laughs> in the best way uh, and being really wrapped and... Um, just wrung out by the elements uh, as a whole. And and again, it's far beyond anything that I would have considered, you know, quote, a massage. And so I'm still in this mystery of, you know, what, what occurred. And, and what I, was that? <laughs> yeah, and I would love to hear a bit more about what do you understand is, is happening within that space? Well, it's... Uh, Lomi Lomi is, is not something that Thankfully, it's not something that I invented out of my own genius. Mm. It's a, a practice that was prepared and implemented and prayed over thousands of generations ago by people who, in an important sense, were not my people, not my lineage, my. Uh, heritage, at least the physical heritage of this body. And however, um, I believe that it, or or my understanding is that that uh, practice was meant to be 
something that continued on and was in some ways prepared for generations to come, including this one, maybe more so than ever. But the fact that it was sourced so deeply in time and by people whose wisdom was, we might say, more more intact than is even possible today, perhaps, lives on largely in the in the present time through through myself i say that as humbly as possible that i'm not the only one uh and by the generosity of the hawaiian people who are the true heirs of the practice um so having said that i would say it's a, it's a surprise also the way that 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 um understanding can show up physically, not as as thought, not as a, a artifact of thinking or mind, but that it's a capacity of our human energy, energetic bodies to to find the entire universe in a moment, right. in a place, in your breath, in the breath of life. And uh, it's a pretty broad maybe not very um, satisfactory explanation of a personal experience that you had. You spoke of your experience as hollowing spirituality. And uh, I, I expect some of your listeners may be a little, you know, um, uh, discomforted by the hollowing. But I think uh, uh, we might all think, wonder that this this could be actually the sign of something we all aspire to in some ways to be to be less burdened by our thoughts by our um, preoccupations and in, uh, in a moment all the things that we're trying to unravel and un, undo and uh, un, unwind the skein and all the rest because it's only in that uh, hollow place where something can show up, something can appear. And um, that's something I would generally say as well is is your higher spiritual um, guidance, which uh, is to, we could I could speak of it as a function of your ancestry, your ancestors, mine, the ancestors of the practice itself uh, give finally given a chance to appear and whisper to you in their language which doesn't coincide altogether with any humanly spoken language uh, and that actually the fact that it actually takes place and that you can testify to it to me is astounding you know mm-hmm. even though, it's been laid on me to be the the guy, the practitioner. Uh, it's it's still. I almost hesitate to use the word, but it's it's, it's a kind of miracle. Mm-hmm. You know, the old etymology of miracle is something that's that um, causes your lips to part, mm-hmm. which is it, it can be a lot of things: something stunning, something not expected. Something beautiful, something awesome, yeah. something that's this that's the old I think the oldest possible understanding of miracle, yeah. you know. 
And uh, would it be we, we can all be continue to be surprised uh, when we turn around and uh, don't see the same thing mm. that we saw a minute ago, mm. and or when we look in the mirror and and see a mystery mm. instead of the same old Joe. <laughs> And I understand you studied for a number of years in Hawaii. I well, as long as we don't get the idea that I was living there a number of years, mm-hmm. this this involved repeated journeys back and forth from where I actually live here in British Columbia mm-hmm. uh, to basically. I mean, uh, my experiences uh, with Lomi Lomi took place on on Kauai and Molokai. And Maui is dear to my heart. I have relatives uh, living on the big island. So mm. this, of course, means a fair amount of coverage there. But mm. um, so, yes, I spent a good deal of time uh, in various places and th- those places I mentioned. Mm. And I understand at a certain point, perhaps was it at the completion of the formal training period, but you were offered or given a name? in its fullness that I would love for you to share. <laughs> All right. Well, the name was given not right at the end. That that was some quite some while before. And by the generosity of uh, Kumu Punahele Andrade, um, and the name itself is Keikoa. You mentioned at the, at the beginning, uh, mm. introduction. Keikoa is a short form. Kekoa taua nui loa, nui loa oke aloha. And um, again, you know, I will hesitate just a moment to um, make too uh, uh, public a, a claim over this. You know, mm. this is these kind of names are sometimes sought after. I didn't particularly, but as a result of some conversations, Punahele was. Uh, willing to uh, invest me, I think that might be the proper thing, with, with the burden of the name that is uh, begins in English, the warrior, or as it happens, he was he used uh, the adjective nui loa, or the great warrior, and uh, I call this a burden because uh, first of all. Warrior is a very um, a thing to really ponder over in our time. Like, is that something uh, you you uh, want to embrace? That I want to embrace. And if I did uh, find a way to embrace uh, some of the deeper understandings of that, as I've come to understand, uh, am I really worthy of this? You know, and what does it ask of me? Um, so that, the last part of the name, however, is the saving grace, if you will. It's the great warrior of aloha, or uh, translate that in that particular context as love. So this, uh, w- what does it mean to be a warrior of love? An interpreter and a carrier of the fate of love in this world loving uh, in its many guises and forms. So that's that's the burden that was placed on me. <laughs> mm. hmm. I've heard that's the 
one of the functions of names in this regard is to, in a way, ask more of the person being given the name, or that that calls them forth, in a way, into a higher path of service. That is, that's my understanding too. I think we've heard that in various places, and uh, it doesn't take you don't have to seek far to find it. That, but it was you know uh, my it it was also a matter of recognition. Because those names would usually only have been given after a certain period of time by those who had had a chance to observe uh, your gifts in in some and often in a way that where they're it's almost prescient of them they see something that uh, that you don't haven't seen or don't see about yourself. And that's that's often the best because that means they're calling you to a higher version of yourself. And um, in this instance, we don't really have to avoid the idea of higher and lower. You know, this is um, it's kind of an allergic uh, thought in our time. But mm-hmm. there there is a higher a being that is is recognized as already virtual or incipient there mm-hmm. and uh, but that uh, might not actually have a chance or a full chance w- without the imposition on the part of others who had uh, or who knew and understood what it might take or what it might ask to pursue a particular line or a particular gift. So it's it's both things. It's a recognition, but it's also a um, courteous um, directive towards something that you you might abs- actually miss. You being the named one, were you not to have that as a spur or goad? Mm. Looking back on your life now, um, which is rich, for, even from what little I know, um, and multi, <laughs> multi-chaptered, from 12 years in the company of Jesus with the Jesuit order to graduate and associate of the Institute of Transformative Movement. Um, like these, these uh, aspects, I wonder, can you see the thread of this warrior of love within those chapters of your life as well? And what did they what did they come to mean to you? What did they mean at the time? And maybe uh, what did they come to mean to you later? Well, my goodness, you you've actually um, uh, asked a question in a way that I've never quite considered before. What what actually is the thread related to this name we've just been discussing? Mm. And. Um, <clears throat> So I won't give a little thought to that. <laughs> I mean, when you ask the question, the first thing that arose within me is a, a, an affirmation. Mm. Well, of, but of course. Mm. And then the second thing that arose is, yeah, but how? You know, all of those things are contested in many ways. Even my... Uh, uh, appearance in the neighborhood of the society of Jesus, you know, and amongst the, those who called me towards the Catholic faith uh, at one time, and still in 
which which still has its its place in my house. But I will say this: uh, all I can say by way of answer to that is that <clears throat> when I first experienced uh, contact with the faith community of which the the Society of Jesus is a part. It happened like this. I wasn't by birth a member or a kind of sort of statutory, you're in it because you're in it. I was an outsider. And I was drawn in that direction by currents and forms of opinion within the faith community that were uh, controversial, Primarily, I'm talking about liberation theology and my own uh, sort of political leanings, mm. uh, both during and after the time of Vietnam in the U.S. So, however, I found myself often attending uh, the uh, the liturgies at a at a church in at a parish in Seattle. And standing in the back, appearing after everything began and leaving after everything ended, uh, before everything ended. And having done that for a number of months, I was was standing there getting ready to leave, to walk out the door as, as the congregants were passing forward to receive their portion of the the Eucharist or the exchange with the of with the the body and the mind of Jesus, and and suddenly out of nowhere there came to my into my thoughts, uh, as it were, the voice of a friend at my shoulders saying uh, something like this: "Where are you going?" And and uh, this this uh, took me so by surprise that I actually stopped in my tracks and I. I asked myself, "What?" Uh, waited for a moment, and then and the next thing that came from that source into my uh, awareness was, "But you see, we're friends. You and I, we've always been friends. We'll always be friends. And this is my meal, my feast. Why are you leaving now? Yeah. Now." That's that's not um, that's not necessarily the um, well structured intellectual answer to this question, <laughs> but I would say that was the moment when I turned in a certain direction, when I felt the love of my friend. It so happened that I couldn't see this friend, yeah. but. Um, I'm fortunate enough in some ways not to have been over, overly impressed by the necessity of seeing, hearing, feeling, touching, and so on, mm. you know, which is actually not such a bad thing when it comes to the question of love or loving in this world, mm. which often gets too quickly converted into the literal f- facts of what, to what I've, I've been attracted in this moment. To what has uh, what have my eyes preferred to something else? You know, and, and um, sometimes for a while that can school me. That kind of attraction, that desire for, the, can school me in the ways of 
of of the pursuit of something mm. other than myself. Mm. But it often just gets wrapped around, as you know. And other things must follow if the pathway of love itself is to unfold in such a way that it isn't, uh, doesn't become a, a uh, imprimatur or a guarantee of our own, my own projects. Mm. And uh, that means stepping outside uh, as as the as what as the nature of love itself begins to unfold uh and re- and be revealed because the the worst thing and the hardest thing in this life is is should love itself begin to clo- close its doors yeah. or, i don't think that love does close its doors but this can happen in some ways yeah. that the disappointment of being only a self, only wrapped up uh, in the immediacy, uh, and having only this horizon that, that has, is also an experience of the doors closing, um, of the light becoming far more twilight, yeah. sundown uh, light. And so... Uh, straying a little bit from your question, what, where's the thread there? But maybe that that I'm t- maybe I am telling you the thread. Yeah. That the threads are there; they're present in everything you love. Everything you know, even my threadbare old pants, you know, <laughs> and the way it breaks my heart a little bit when they finally start to rip apart, you know, and that and. But but and however there is uh, this this um, very f- sometimes very fragile light that is is again asking us to to seek higher to look up to um, be able to have to be enlarged in the in what in the world we can carry mm. uh, and and begin to carry things that many things that do not necessarily involve an immediate uh, benefit unto ourselves, mm. even though it can often start there, mm. as I said. So, mm. Thank you. You know, it strikes me to, to tease apart love and uh, understanding, you know, what are some other facets of it? Or, or one element in particular I'm, I'm intrigued by is, uh, I think, Somewhere during that time, you were drawn into movement. Sound, sounded like into um, you know more embodiment. It felt like in some way of I'm thinking now of eros and mm-hmm. and how you have a relationship with that, or how that relationship moves through you. As some people again confuse a lot of these things together, and I would say for me, as I look at your work, I feel like there is this thread of of eros in in the way that you're expressing it. Um, and I would be curious to hear more about how you've navigated that. Well, just following my inclinations, when I hear you say the word eros, uh, of course I'm fully aware of the the many kind of discourses that could arise in, in the invocation of, of the word. It was one of the, of course, one of the Greek words for love. Mm. The Greeks didn't satisfy themselves with one. I say our Greek ancestors. Uh, however, 
Eros was also a god, or amongst the gods. Um, what does it mean to say amongst the gods? Yeah. You know, as something that's not just an anthropologically wise and thing to say about past things, things that are you know beyond us or beneath us, or just that that, that whatever the holy is. However, however that might appear in our lives, even today, there is, there is amongst the holy, this of Eros. And it may be that you're saying the name, the word Eros, actually also still carries the echo of the name Eros, naming that which is in the, in the, in the divine world. And, if we carry along with that the clear recollection that Eros is of us too, it's of our body, of the embodiment that you spoke of, that mm-hmm. that it it it, it 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 means something important right away. That that in us, which is Eros, which you would experience uh, that we won't tease that out at the moment, but that there is divinity there mm-hmm. as well as everything else that we might ponder over today so it, it's important i make i make much of this just because there is there is an old there are a number of old stories but there are well-known stories about this uh, god if you will and um about his function i'm not using the pronoun here his i, th- I think it might be fair to say that this is um a very uh, two-spirited being in many ways, mm. maybe one who, unlike our current understanding of the gods, actually acquired something in his time too, mm. became wiser than at the beginning. Um, Eros is a trickster at the beginning. Mm. Amongst the tricksters, that's a very specific class of um the divini- the divinities let's mm-hmm. say what is it? a trickster is um, a very important function uh spiritually speaking a very annoying and very disruptive too uh, that's true but uh, and and there there are good reasons to be annoyed you know by the by trickster forces sometimes um, all of the at least indigenous stories of tricksters that I'm aware of sometimes uh, make it very clear that the, that the tricksters have no particular interest in improving our situation. Mm. I mean, our human situation. Mm. They they may just be um, quite. I think it was uh, Gomisto, some ancient uh, wise person who said the gods can be recognized by their cheerfulness. <laughs> and uh, it's always a surprise to me to think that thought, but I think there's a lot of truth to it, especially to the, amongst the tricksters. Mm-hmm. They, they're able to maintain cheerfulness because our uh, misery doesn't really, touch, at first doesn't touch them. But if you know the story of Eros, that story says that this trickster who started out this way eventually learned something uh, about love mm. or about the love that he um, 
as a god, Eros, was constantly stimulating or bringing forth in the world. Yeah. Um, whereas originally it would seem that his function as a trickster was to bring about relationship. And that's something to ponder on. Yeah. Um, you know, classically, it's true. He's said to have uh, a quiver and to have a bow and by, by his arrow, which you might not see, but you will certainly feel. <laughs> you will certainly suffer when it, when it lands on you. But, but by the shooting of that arrow, some, a relationship is made where none uh, seemed possible mm. moments before, mere moments before mm. uh, in some way. And this is an annoyance. <laughs> in in almost all instances, but it's also a grace because uh, loneliness is uh, very easy to court. It's the easiest thing mm. in many ways. Mm. And it can get deeper and deeper and so on, you know. Mm. And Eros is the one whose function appears to be to reverse this um, uh, sort of, you might say, natural tendency However, uh, you know, I think it'd be fair to say if you know the story of Eros, uh, Eros and Psyche, I'm referring to now, that it may be that Eros took a little bit more delight than in this, um, in the disruptive side of this activity mm -hmm. of his at the beginning yeah. of his story. But it was actually a human being in the story and uh, a young as it happens, a young, at least pictured or imagined as a young woman or a young girl, Psyche, Psyche, mm -hmm. we can speak of this in archetypal terms, but just to imagine uh, that Eros um, tricked himself, let's say, but <clears throat> it's often overlooked what it is that tricked him. Mm. The, classically, the story says that he shot himself when he was intending to shoot her. Mm. to create devastation and misery and mayhem in her life. But something surprised him when he approached her. I'm not telling the whole story, but I'll tell you what surprised him. Because this, uh, this very young, human, humanly fulsome woman was uh, deeply in grief and had, had cried herself to sleep. And was still sleeping, uh, still weeping in her sleep. And when Eros showed up to surprise her, uh, she couldn't actually see him, but something happened that awoke her and her eyes opened. And he looked into her eyes and, and he saw something that surprised him, surprised the divinity. Mm. Uh, that's something to ponder on and wonder about. But that something had to do with a beauty, had to do with beauty, but not, not what we like to think of as beauty. It was, and of course, now I'm taking myself out on a limb here, but I've studied this story and I've spoken it and read it over and over and I've told it many times myself. And what I've come to as a conclusion is that Eros spotted grief, uh, the grief of a mortal, unknown to himself prior to that moment, unknown as a consequence of the of the 
quote, of the quote-unquote love that he himself is the gifter of, it would seem, uh, at its incipience at any way, when it's a matter of desire and wanting and longing and so forth. But this young woman, in her grief, opened her eyes, and the sight of something there that was unfamiliar to the divinity, Eros, surprised him so much that he lost control <laughs> and managed to shoot himself. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of a typical, uh, the trickster tricks himself. Mm. But everything that ensues in that story ensues because of that. And in some ways, you could say that the course of that story is that the human who is, who is, uh, who is at the center of the story becomes more divine but much much less the young, mm. fresh, untried woman, girl, girl woman, mm. becomes something else. Uh, she's been tried and tested mm -hmm. many times by the end of the story. And that trying and testing means that she's become, in some ways, divinized, not immortal, But it also means, and you can see this in the story too, that by the end, the divinity has become more humanized, more uh, capable of seeing the consequences and of, of, uh, of in some ways, um, allowing for the possibility that divinity has become something that, that actually can be even more a matter of grace unto us because it doesn't require us to imagine ourselves as eternal mm. or unbounded or other than what we are, but we still have this ability in our heart to hold the world, mm. to be of the, to be, to be so, um, full and rich to, to, to be expanded uh, and to hold all of this so that love becomes a much greater thing, mm. a greater. By that, I'm, I'm really in some ways just speaking numerically, not, mm. not so much, you know, morally in some sense. But So, um, so much more could be said, you know, mm. uh, perhaps. I mean, everybody has, and I might have my, myself have my curiosity about Eros and how it, finds its way into my breath, into my bones, into mm. my muscles, my movement, my, uh, my longings, um, uh, my even, and, and then of course the capacity to actually with these hands, with this breath, with the words that I speak or the songs that I sing, actually materially uh, make a difference for myself and the people in the things and the places that I uh, claim to love, mm. that I, that I uh, like to um, hold in my heart as, yes, mm. yes, I'm, I'm committed here. Mm. No. Mm. Many things could be said about all that, but I like to at least allow for the possibility that the story is still in the background mm. and it still might be appealed to to give us a, a little bit better uh, purchase on what can we do about these many dilemmas of being embodied people who have 
uh, who are who who have people in front of us, you know, who have our attractions and our distractions and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm familiar with that story as well, but I hadn't spent as much time on that on that moment as you say the trickster getting tricked and mm-hmm. and the kind of um almost like an initiatory moment is kicked off for both the human and the divine. Yeah. Well, I think there's a reluctance in the, uh, that's still that's still carried even by the by the many in our time culturally who are disfellowshipped or disfellowshipped themselves from the theological understandings uh, that are strongest, let's say, in the Orthodox Christian world, mm. that the the divine is impassable, does not change is not in some ways um, that involved in that way in the unfolding or the emanation of the world. Mm. But this is a story that's suggesting otherwise in a way. So, But, but it also encounters that resistance or that maybe even un, unconscious thought that if, if, the, if there is divinity, it surely is uh, above and beyond mm-hmm change and and um alteration so but i i think this story if you if you read it in the way that i do more and more it's it's really asking us to to think a bigger thought many bigger thoughts without relinquishing the respect that's certainly um um important among us if we do approach the divine realms in this world even today Mm. Mm-hmm. When we were talking about the possibility of doing this interview, uh, and of course it's about loose, loosely it's about masculinities and and this question oh, yes. around around the the masculine, um, there was hesitation on your part that you expressed, and um, I think the way you said it was, you know, you didn't want to just sort of add an opinion about something to something that has people have a lot of opinions about, and yet. Um, I had shared that, you know, I really valued the approach to these kinds of things without going directly at them, because mm-hmm. I think that they reveal a much more interesting inquiry. And and I wonder to you now, I mean, again, looking back at the, the threads of your life as well, how have you contended just, you know, with that question or with that wondering for yourself about your own understanding of masculinity, of um you know, being within an order itself, uh, which is often characterized as, you know, again, a masculine God. And how has that, you know, been wrestled for you? Oh, my goodness. You certainly know (laughs) (laughs) the big, the big questions, my friend. Mm. And, um, you know, it's not in me to want to disappoint particularly, Mm. you know, um, because I think in our time this this question is is very hard to approach in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, you you'll remember as I do that one of the very important questions that our friend in the Orphan Wisdom School will ask is, "What befell a people mm-hmm. that it came to be like this mm-hmm. as it is?" And I think in the in the realm of uh, the relationships between, and let's let's be clear that we're talking about a binary male, or at least 
you know, that's how it often is framed. Uh, masculinities, femininities, you know, masculine principles, feminine principles. And I'm, I'd be the last to uh, want to undermine um, the many senses in which this is, this reflects experience and, and uh, the purposes of nature, I suppose we could say. But at the very least, you know, uh, also human experience um, enjoins us to, to think bigger thoughts about the binary itself. It's not only a modern um, issue or understanding of the um, the two spirited or 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 the way in which the proportions, let's say, of of, of masculinity, whatever that is, femininity, whatever that is, uh, will appear in in every every body and and sometimes in in ways that that. I think some of our indigenous friends were clear enough to recognize as uh, almost separate gendered forms, mm. forms that in themselves had have uh, have a have a spiritual validity and a function that's necessary to the functioning of the whole um, family or or uh, village or whatever the formation may be. So, but this question. Um, how did it come to pass, uh, and wh or what what happens to a people that it that it should be that first of all the the binary becomes something so deeply entrenched yeah. over so many generations, uh, and that 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 a uh, that that a single that a single understanding prevails so strongly of the relationship between uh, those has has um, undermined the the virtualities or the or the or the many potencies that each of us carry yeah. of our um, just capacities to be human to be human particularly you know how does love express in this body yeah. clad as it is in a particular uh, way, so my, I would say if if you had asked me questions in this regard ten or fifteen or twenty or thirty years ago, my my answer would probably be more straightforward <laughs> than it is now. But uh, time has only um, served in in many ways to. Uh, Increase my desire for uh, to to maintain the ambivalence mm. here, not to rush too quickly towards um, an answer, uh, but to uh, probably in my own case, you know, if I, to, uh, in the ways that I worked together with Elfie and other friends, to uh, place a lot more emphasis on on care. To experiment, to uh, judiciously or wisely in an in an, an erotic sense, let's say, and that that mean, by experiment I mean is is to be um, in charge of this physical energy, this this body, to come to an under to 
work towards an understanding of what happened to a people. Mm. When we're speaking of all of the conundrums and all of the ways in which there are there are violence and uh, deep um, incompatibility, what comes into experience as incompatibilities, mm. especially often in in the in the larger macro forms that people are carrying, you know, clad, body clad. So all of that is is important, but it, it, it seems to me that not only new ideas have to be entertained, but new experiences have to be brought forth and wondered on. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that in this generation, in my generation, certainly, and probably even in yours, that it's... Uh, that it's important to to hamstring ourselves with the thought that that we will know that we will come up with uh, certain. Mm. I think what's most important is that that we that you and I, in the way that we go forward, that we uh, are willing to underwrite uh, the the capacity to experiment, but also the capacity to to, to take the data, mm. to actually read. Uh, and 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 um, and and try try again, try in a different way, move forward differently. Uh, that entails also not being identified with the experiment, if you will, mm-hmm. um, or or that it should have a particular outcome that we did. As long as the outcome in the end is that that there be um, generosity towards the deep soul of everyone who walks into this room or into our room or into our lives in some way you know and that uh, and and developing the leadership out, irrespective of male female two-spirited or the rest to um, be the one who sets the pace for that mm. for that generosity mm. sometimes that's hard to maintain in in public debate which has never been set up mm. you know to uh, maximize generosity of spirit. <laughs> and sometimes things have to be fought for. Uh, there, has to be a, there has to be a warrior um, mm-hmm. approach, certainly, towards justice, towards keeping um, uh, the call very strong, towards um, paying attention to consequence. And, uh, mm-hmm. But I think that's only one dimension you know, which I would support in many ways. I think there's many questions to be asked about that, but but that uh, the the experimental realm that I'm kind of aiming at a little bit here, you could broadly call it personal, mm. I suppose. But I but but who but it's a question of who comes here. You know, must know first and foremost that we're seeking the highest um, ex- expression. And uh, and we'll fight for you. We'll fight if if you fight for me. And my by fight, what I'm saying there is, or I hope I'm saying, mm. is, I will contend alongside of you. Uh, that that towards um, the manifestation, or the the growth, or the actual um, appearance of of the the thing that reminds us and tells us that. that Yes, uh, we've lived well, mm. and we're leaving something worthwhile behind us. Mm. You know, mm. yeah. 
That's my kind of avoidance of your question, <laughs> actually. Mm. No, I, I do appreciate that. Um, you know, I'm thinking now of, uh, there's a line in uh, Stephen Jenkinson's book, as you, we've mentioned now before, um, it's called Money and the Soul's Desires, is the oh, book, yes. which you may or may not have read. But read there's that. a line where he says, the importance of younger men uh, being around older men. And not to, you know, kind of be here of their victories, but just to hear how life has gone for them and, and the benefit of that and that, that kind of uh, nourishment that is for younger men. And, and I am certainly feeling that, you know, now in this moment and in our other interactions. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just thinking around this question of memory, that mm-hmm. memory as a, um, you know, entrustment that those with more years you know, in them, uh, that, that they carry and how little value it seems to be placed on memory, um, as a, as a, at least in this culture. Um, and I remember one time you also wrangled a, a elaboration on the tree of life of which I'm actually looking at, I think on, on one of your pieces. Oh, <laughs> and, you are. Mm-hmm. and I wonder, um, if you might speak a little to that and, and, uh, one, you know, that this, this symbol, I believe has shown up a few times in, in at least some of the pieces I've seen of yours. Um, and it's also been something in our conversations that we've spoken to, uh, that there's something about this link about, you know, memory and its need to be fed or memory as a God itself or memory as, you know, um, a, a cultural, uh, value or entrustment that I feel, you know, is so much a part of this moment as well. And, and the willingness to, to know or the willingness to learn. Yeah. But what, you know, what happened, what befell the people. And so I wonder if you might begin to approach that. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there are many, there are many ways I could imagine approaching it. I mean, you mentioned a tree of life there, this, um, the, the world tree or the central tree of the world, this appears all, all around the globe in, in many of our cultural brothers and sisters, um, old stories. I've known it best myself in what I've come to know or understand a little bit about Yggdrasil, the, the tree of the world tree or the cosmic tree. Um, you know, but but it's uh, what actually occurs to me, though, in answer to your question, is is something else. It's, mm. it, it we may sort of arc back around to the tree itself, but I'm thinking of something a little more subterranean. Mm. Um, and the way we might arc back to the tree eventually is, you know, to acknowledge the obvious, which is the tree begins with its roots, which its roots are deep. Uh, uh, deep or shallow, but they're definitely in or under the earth, and uh, they they anchor the tree, but they also seek out the water or the waters of life. This gives me the thought, um, which I think is important in regard to your question. Mm-hmm. That um, now you and now you may have heard, as I did too, that the. Uh, our Greek, um, uh, the ancients among the Greeks had uh, uh, many had certain stories about the quote unquote afterlife, about what might be encountered uh, by those who who uh, pass from our sight, and almost always there's some kind of water 
And that's not just among the Greeks, it's almost everywhere. It's almost universal that the first thing, or one of the first things that's encountered there is a boundary, which is a river, or it might be a, a large lake, or it might be an ocean, or water of some kind. And um, so we, we could stop there and think a lot on the water, but let's just think of this river called Lethe. Uh, you, know, you may have heard that, that um, at least many of the stories say that there's this river called Lethe amongst the Greeks. Lethe is a Greek word that uh, me, fundamentally means to forget. Mm. And uh, so that the um, dead or those who have just passed from this world are either carried across this river or they walk through it, being a shallow river of some sort. And the waters, uh, either either the very passage over the waters or the walking through it, draws all of your memories mm. into the river and they're carried away, it says, as rivers do. Mm. They just go. Mm. And on the other side, they are um, shades, that's that's what the you know the anthropology the all the study says. Mm -hmm. It's only in the past about two years ago that I learned there's more to the story though, and it's important to uh, to keep this in mind. Uh, at least there was a version of the story that went like this. You have to imagine that this river Lethe, uh, like many rivers on this earth do, eventually falls down. Uh, um, disappears into the earth itself, into its underground caverns. It's passing along, still carrying, quote-unquote, all the memories, everyone that goes by. And uh, after some great long while, these waters begin to feed a spring, uh, that, or, uh, an artesian spring, you might say, that's being lifted by natural force back to the surface. Uh, it's to, so it's important to think two thoughts. One is that this passage through the underground, this leakage through the stony passages of the earth means that there's a kind of distillation going on. Mm. That, that whatever, which is going to, in course, include the memories coming along there. That not all memories, not all things that transpired will uh, remain a part of this water, you know, some will just simply be um, leached, let's say, or left behind here or there, but something. And usually the that of which is of greatest value for life remains and is uh, then feeding this, this spring. Now the spring coming to the surface, it too has a Greek name. And uh, that the name is Mnemosyne. I don't know if I pronounce that properly. Mm. And it's not easy to spell the thing either. Mm. But this, what this means is the well of remembrance. And you'll find that in the word itself. Mnemonics. Mm. Uh, memory itself uh, is related to this word, mnemosyne. Mnemosyne is uh, the, the territory of a titan or a goddess. Um, the, whose name is Mnemosyne. Now, here's something too important to know. Mnemosyne mm. is the mother 
of the muses, nine. You've heard of the muses. Muses are those who uh, classically are considered to be the ones who teach humans how to make beauty in various ways by the way they by the way we speak, by the way we sculpt, the way we dance, the way we um, poetize, the way we weep. Uh, there is a muse who has this particular craft in mind. The nine muses are crafting the memories that came. So uh, the important thing to know is that the muses are accessible. They're accessible by our uh, longing for beauty. Even in all the places where beauty is the last thing you might expect. But this beauty will always have in it the ring of memory, of memories. So, And the other thing that's important to remember is if you take this story as a whole, it doesn't mean that these memories are lost because they're taken by the river Lethe. If, if it stops there, it looks pretty grim. But what I would say, if this is taken as a whole cycle, it's an understanding that something can can come back through this practice of beauty making. And by remaining willing to hear or listen to the world soul, as you if you will. The other thing is that it, it may that that what is being fed as memories will be. Uh, in some ways, the gift or offering of those whose names you will never know, uh, I will never know. And that's part of the heartbreak of it, perhaps. But it doesn't, it still, it proclaims that nothing is lost. So I could say that the, the World Tree story uh, tells us the same thing in a very different way. It also involves the waters. In that story, the tree is is arising from a well, the well of Urd. Uh, Urd mean a lot of things, but it, it so happens is very bound up with the understandings of time. In our North, the, the cultures, the ancient cultures of our northern uh, brother and sister cultures, mm. so-called Germanic or Proto-Germanic cultures. And the well of Urd, or as it came to be in uh, Indo- in um uh, the old English language, weird, mm. is is of the past. But that if we stop there again, we're you know stuck in the past. Mm. You know the terror of our time. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, no. But uh, see, the story also says that there's a constant dew falling from the tree itself, which is renewing the the substance of the well. But with it is also coming something else. What comes with the do? What's coming with the do is the quality of everything that you and I are doing, including this conversation. Every living being who who is who is a, is of the living world now. Your aspiration toward beauty or to excellence in undertaking this, not as a victory for yourself. It, that is the do, you, because we are the leaves. We are the current, you know, one, and uh, and and our 
our uh, willingness to to uh, uh, apply ourselves in a higher manner to all that we do, um, even if we were utterly defeated uh, by our own count in things. But that that excellence, that's the do. It falls in, and that's what feeds the tree. It feeds the tree, which is a tree of life, to keep going. Uh, but the, the fact that it keeps going is means it benefits what comes after mm. you and I, not us. Now, you've heard this said by, uh, by that uh, particular genius we mentioned before, but... Mm -hmm. It's it's written into that story too. And it's it's not fundamentally suggesting something different than the first story I told you, in that sense, mm -hmm. because there's a circulation or a cycle. It has to do with time. It does have to do with memory, um, but it also says that all is not lost, even when there's been a break to some degree in the line of specific transmission of memories, let's say, from, from uh, in, in some sense of wisdom tradition. Mm. All of this is not really speaking too much about our individual memories, let's mm. say, uh, the memories that we carry of our early life and so on. Uh, and I think it would probably be important to address how that might be also playing into these two great stories or big stories I've said. But again... I say our lack of something in the background like that often means that that the individual stories we carry mm -hmm. are are the, our replacement, are what we're tending to insist upon. That everybody uh, and the whole world is some is is at stake in these individual stories, mm -hmm. um, rather than um, a simple and immediate justice. Often, mm -hmm. so. Well, I'm grateful for this. Um, and, you know, I'm struck with the image of, of this capacity to, to orient or to true to the world soul as vital. Um, and in that sense, it's, it's becomes a, you know, an antidote or a lifeline or something to the, the personal or to being stuck, you know, mm -hmm. in the personal drama. And I feel like there's something about the nature of this time, which, you know, we're, we're still in the wake of coronavirus and, and, you know, figuring out what does this quote mean? What might it mean? How to contend with this, um, divinity also, you know, as, as some, as some have said, and I'm struck by this, um, this invitation, it feels to, to attune once more to, to a kind of, you know, what's worth doing in this time. And in some ways, it feels like it needs a longer horizon, or it needs almost a mythological context in order to bring about that ability to attune. Let's say, you know, I think mm -hmm. of many people, right, who without that are again lost in their own personal, you know, calamities. You know, with with how this may be playing out in their own lives, and that there's something about yeah, the memory of wait a second, um, have we been here before? You know, or what is asked of us in this time? Um, if we're able to see a bigger story. And so I feel like all of that seems to be jostling for, you know, some uh, place in, in this moment. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I would say that that's what they laid on me a little bit, mm -hmm. the, these mysterious ones, you know. Um, hopefully I've 
before I leave this world, I'll, I'll get good enough at it, you know, to to uh, at least in some way demonstrate the validity of that understanding that that you've just sort of pointed at in that way. Um, it's not the only thing that's necessary to um, a human life, for sure, a, a, a decidedly human life. Yeah. But I, I, I am persuaded myself, so I'll keep at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, hope, I hope that you and others will in your way, too. <laughs> There's a proverb, I believe, um, attributed to the Celts, or Confucius, depending on where you look on the internet. But it's, uh, never give a sword to a man who can't dance. Oh. Which maybe you've heard of. I never heard that, but I like it. Yeah. And as I reflect on the story that you shared and and your own experience and, you know, the warrior of love and of movement and the dance and attuning to the the movement of life, I feel that that uh, characterizes somewhat of your journey and I wonder how that what I wonder what stirs in you when you hear that would you just tell me that little bon mot sure. if you would <laughs> never give a sword to a man who can't dance oh. never give a sword to a man who can't dance well the the role of dance I think um this is almost uncanny, I think. I mean, uh, many people dance. Uh, I'm I'm living in a in a very dance uh, loving community here, and I have been fortunate enough to be so in many of the places I lived, and fortunate to learn a great deal about the cultural traditions of dance as well. Mm. And I also. I, I would say that one of the um, the, the ways in which the uh, captivity, uh, I can't really think to describe it another way, of many uh, men, men who have been friends, men who have confessed or spoken with me about their physical lives, that, that captivity often is very readily apparent if you have the eyes to see mm. uh, in in movement, in the dance of uh, walking, in the dance of standing in a room, actually. And, um, of course, uh, speaking of it uh, like this, verbally, without being seen, without demonstrating, is, is sometimes very hard, I think, to convey uh, what it what it takes to um, for anybody to find the the total quantum of grace, mm. physical grace, and the, even the word grace itself, in its deep uh, roots, referred to uh, a fluidity and grace of motion or of movement in the world, mm. um, and it still carries that. You you'll see some. This was very gracefully done or achieved or a person who walked through the room in a graceful way and um, there's nothing more moving to me than what I would sometimes be tempted to call a masculine grace and I I find it 
is also uncanny often in the sense of it not appearing as often as you might think, given how many of us <laughs> there are. At least when I say us, I'm clad in this particular fashion mm. with all the hormonal and uh, accoutrements, you know, and, mm. and uh, the things we are proud of, some of us, sometimes a little more than mm. others. So how to, how to dance them? And I think that even when we are speaking of the warrior traditions, uh, that I that I know a little bit about. Um, I don't. I wouldn't claim to be a expert in in all respects. But all of them that I know about or have had any contact with teach dance, teach moving movement, teach the movements uh, of the sword. Let us say. But it also meant that there was a time in which the competitive spirit. Or the, the, the spirit or the spirit of defense of that which is important, which is vital to life. Mm. That, 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 it, that it is proper to speak sometimes of defending life and defending it in the form in form, mm. in the form in which it has you or I have come to be of it. Uh, but culturally, many of those things uh, were uh, what in modern times we would say very stylized. You know, they might involve what we would think of as dance competitions. <laughs> you know, um, actually, and uh, those were carried out sometimes in a way in which it was impossible to um, not to admit uh, this that some someone. Some other peoples, some other men, some other group or representative, they've, they've outdone us today. Yeah. And so we're the thing, our, our discussions, let's say, our conversations, our words will, will carry on knowing that for this moment at least, we're giving a certain concession there. Maybe it'll change next time. So we're going to keep practicing. You know, we're, we're going to keep doing this. There's a a horrific story, but I think it's indicative in a way that when the the conquistadors first arrived in Peru, they were presented with, uh, on one occasion, with something like 10,000 uh, indigenous men who were of the warrior class dancing. Hmm. They were, who they came to demonstrate their dance, which was some, in a way something that they considered in the way I've just spoken to you. It so unnerved the conquistadors that they blocked all of the exits from this square where this was taking place, and they attacked these men on horseback with swords uh, who were not actually uh, offering any direct threat. But they themselves were, had, had nothing uh, corresponding to this at all. They came with their own understanding, which is murdering and destroying what you uh what you uh don't understand or what is beyond you know, what you think of as as something threatening to unto yourself mm. uh in that in that kind of a moment that's where the question should lie what became of that people those men let's say on horseback with their swords that it came to this mm. that that was all they could do because they had nothing else mm. But it wasn't always so. They were, they were human amongst the human themselves. Yeah. 
but all of those traditions and understandings and capabilities to actually compete in 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 uh, an old time way, they were gone. Mm-hmm. No, and instead there was a sword and no dance. There's there it is. The, that that's that's the dark side. That's what awaits us when that's not so anymore. The relationship between the dance. Uh, so it doesn't mean just doing a good thing with a sword. It means that, that that you're underwriting something else with your every movement, and what that something else is is your love of life, you know, and the and your love of the way life is showing up in your own body. And in the bodies of the men that you're dancing with, mm. or the male-clad ones who choose to stand with mm. you, mm. like mm. that. Mm. Yeah, that's what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Gary. Mm. I'd love to ask for you to to leave the listener with some some sense of. You know, I'm thinking I was at your birthday about a year ago now, today, mm-hmm. um, close to today. And I remember you you offered, I think, just um, through the the mm, vitality of the moment, uh, a, a very stirring plea, it felt, to the rest of us to be willing to show up on behalf of life, to be willing to you know, be warriors, but in not the way that some might typically, but maybe in the way that we've been speaking here. Mm-hmm. And I remember being very moved by it and not to ask you to recreate anything, but I just wonder, as we've been speaking of this, you know, what might you say to the listener to, to invite them into that story, invite them into show up in such a way? Yeah, well... Uh, it's it's deep in my heart. I think it's in yours. I, I know it's all all around. The recognition that um, that there is a peril stalking the world and life now, mm. on a scale. I mean, just to speak of scales that uh, has never before that that historically has never been um, uh, available there. And, um, you know, in one way, that's we're deeply handicapped because we all live very uh, locally, ir- irregardless of the appearance of the world. I mean, of course, or we don't, you know, we're so dis- uh, disconnected from the place where we live through, through travel, through a constant movement, that the um, inherency of ourselves to the world is lost to view. And so sometimes it takes this strident kind of plea, please, please look in this direction with me, if you will. And uh, know that my saying, my, my begging for this and asking for this is not because I, I've, I've done so well myself or that, you know, but I've, I've stood among a people and I've and and we all have the capacity to see this. This peril is 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 the peril of the locality that you live in because it is on this scale. It is the peril of everything that you love and that I love. And um, the 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 thing I would invite advise everybody to avoid is to the sense of overwhelm there because it's it it 
it's there and I I don't uh, minimize that because of the scale. But uh, it's also important that I think it's ever more important to be uh, willing to to release our hold on the individual good fortune to come and comfort and uh, reproducing forms of life as we've known them before, you know, even technologically, even in all the way, many of the ways that we think, wouldn't it be grand if we could keep this all going in some way, yeah. you know, but, uh, but, but to, uh, to, to lay down something uh, larger and bigger on behalf of something bigger and uh, not to be overwhelmed with the, that it, this is all a result of failure and and you know certainly there's been the failure and it's a historic failure and there's been intent behind it at times but that we might uh, from us from, from fortified spiritually with with the preciousness of life and of our own lives and of the lives of everything that we love to strive even more to uh, follow these threads of to to embrace the world the world soul yeah. you know so i'm not uh, i don't have a, a broad voice or a broad reach particularly but on occasion like you mentioned or even this yeah. i say if you're if you're on board there I'm with you mm. as much as I can be. And uh, I'll send forth the, the call as best I can now and other times too, you know. Mm. And we'll see what can be um, remembered. <laughs> but see, it's that excellence piece. That's what we do. Even if we're defeated, this excellence is the one thing that might outlast us. Mm. By excellence, I mean... We really do it well, you know, in uh, in in as broad a scale as what's threatening. I'm reminded of a line in Martin Pactel's book, Long Life, Honey in the Heart, where he said, if one must fail, it was better to do so in a beautiful way. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Mm. <laughs> That's what this the world tree story is saying, proclaiming. Mm. You know, so good on Martin because I know he's 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 in charge of this, the same understanding in another from another deep corner of this world. Well, Gary, yeah. I'm feeling yeah. very grateful for our time here today in your studio. Uh, me too. Thank you. And it's been um, my understanding is you know for a lot of younger men, they look to those who have more time in, and maybe they don't see that many around that. Um, give them a, a reason to want to continue. And as I look to you and the life and the beauty that you've built around you, you've certainly given me reasons to to want to keep going and to serve in the ways that you have. Mm-hmm. Well, that means everything to me to, to hear something like that said that there might, might be some uh, outfall from all this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So mahalo to you and to all of those uh, like yourself and younger ones who may be listening, you know, just uh, may there be something in all this that uh, inspires you to keep going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, 
please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.